Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hi there, welcome to the first half of my interview with Nick Cregan of Fairlight Asset Management. In this opening half, we talk about the history behind the name of his fund, the crucial stepping stones in his investing career, the investment philosophy and filtering process at Fairlight, backed by excellent examples. Nick also provides a great overview of why cash return on invested capital and the defensibility of revenue and moats is so crucial to the way Fairlight invests. For the full episode, head to the RAS Australia YouTube channel. G'day, Nick. Uh, welcome to the Australian Investors Podcast. How are you going? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, really excited to have you on. Um, first things first, um, I understand the name of your fund, uh, Fairlight Asset Management. There's a bit of uh, an interesting story and history and also meaning behind it. Yeah, a little bit of history there. Um, so um, the, the fund sort of came into fruition after some deliberation after leaving Evans and Partners where I'd been for a few years and had a good time there and um, left on, on good terms with the partners. but was seeing out my non-compete period and um, we were living down on Fairlight Beach at the time, which is a tiny little beach on, on Sydney Harbour. Most people aren't familiar with it. And um, I was speaking to my lovely wife at the time and we we're trying to figure out what to do with our lives. And she's got a background in, in um, marketing and brand for funds management businesses. And I've got an investing background and happened to also grow up in Fairlight a long, long time ago. I would move back to the area in the last 12 months and sitting on that little beach and we were saying, well, you know, why don't we have a crack at, at starting a smaller mid-cap fund and what are we going to call it? Uh, and she said, well, you know, Fairlight's got a really nice ring to it in, in terms of, you know, the word itself, fair, which, you know, that's not a bad thing, treating your clients fairly and light, transparency. Um, they're, they're two sort of nice connotations to a word. And, and most people don't know that it's a, a little beach in, in, in Sydney. So um, most people just kind of associate the, the name with, you know, just a funds management business, but um, there was a little bit of meaning behind it. So I threw that name into the ring with the other guys who we were forming business with. And thankfully uh, they agreed that it had a, a nice tone and uh, we ran with Fairlight Asset Management. Yeah, I do really like the name because I think when you say fair, I think it reminds me of um, independence. I think that's something that you've mentioned before in your previous podcasts and interviews, um, having an independent uh, mindset about investing. You know, so light kind of evokes that sense of um, measured optimism. I'm glad you say that because, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's certainly got a lot of connotations to it. And, and we've had really good feedback on the name actually over the years. And um, usually from people who aren't on the Northern beaches, you can kind of know it's a, it's a little area there, but most people, you know, our clients in, in Melbourne and other parts of the um, country, sort of like the, you know, they, they often say to us, that's a, that's a nice sort of ring to it and it's got some nice connotation. So thanks for the feedback. Yeah. Um, just to go back to when you grew up in Fairlight, um, how did someone who was enjoying the beaches, enjoying the great weather, the great area um, come to come around to investing? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I don't have one of those stories about sort of having Warren Buffett or, or Munger up on my wall at the age of 12 or 13 or sort of having this deep desire to be the world's best investor from, from day one or, you know, having complex algorithms, you know, etched into my mind from an early age. But I was just very fortunate that um, I grew up 
in a in a business household. So my my father had a interest early on, uh, or instilled an interest early on in investing. So he, he held stocks and subscribed to the newsletters of the time. Some of them um, high quality and, and others more questionable, like the Rifkin Report, which uh, which has turned out to be a pretty interesting read over the years. Um, but he, he sort of he he was sort of an investor early on um, in hotels and and pubs and shares and and it was always a point of discussion around the household um, the the importance of you know compound interest um, how that works over time and you want to be a you know you want to be the owner of assets rather than sort of, um, being the payer to those to those assets over time etc so that that instilled uh, interest in me uh, over the years and then I sort of went through school and university studied business at university and very very fortunate that um, you know spent some time in a in a corporate so UTC which owned uh, Chubb Security and FFE Fire and a bunch of other businesses so they got to know the business world from the inside out uh, but learned pretty quickly that didn't really interest me and I was fortunate enough that uh, a friend of mine um, was working at Audmanet at the time and they were looking for a very 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 junior research associate so someone that could literally plug some numbers into spreadsheets and and um, sort of answer the questions of the advisors at the time um, and that they asked me to come in and interview and I was incredibly fortunate that um, I got the nod and that really set me off in, in investing. I loved it from day one. So the first moment I was given access to sort of what these guys did on a daily basis, I was completely enthralled by it all. Um, thought it was the world's greatest job and, and knew that I'd be doing it for a long time. So I guess it was just a very lucky set of circumstances and, and one which I think it's becoming difficult, more difficult over time to, to sort of have those serendipitous entries into the industry. I know that people work incredibly hard these days and they have to get you know, what seems like incredibly high um, hurdles for you know PhDs and CFAs and MBAs and, and you know, to get people's attention to get break into the industry is very, very difficult. Uh, but sort of, you know, going back to 30 years ago now or 20, 25 years ago, it was, it was, it was far easier and a little less... Um, little less onerous in terms of who they were happy to take a punt on. And I guess I was fortunate enough to, to get a foot in the industry. So that was a generalist role. Is that right? At um, Audemonet? It was, it was a very much generalist role. And um, I, was, I was lucky at the time because Audemonet was um, part of JP Morgan. So they had the Insos desk and then they had the retail desk. Um, and I got, I got to know sort of both sides of the business, but I was fortunate in so far as they they gave me way too much responsibility early on as a young analyst. Um, and so I was moved from a, a research associate into an analyst role, covering small caps in a generalist um, capacity. So um, some industrial businesses and um, some mining contracting businesses and and all basically all the companies the analysts didn't want to cover. So if you're a young guy cutting your teeth, they, they give you all the, the companies that usually clients don't listen to you much about. So you're very unlikely to blow up anyone's book or sort of make a fool of the of the firm um, but it also gives you this wonderful opportunity to start building models from scratch learning from the guys around you um, and eventually at the periphery start pitching institutions um, which i did so starting to go around and, and talk to some of the big institutions and pitch these sort of fringe ideas of you know there might be a little bit of alpha here i know you probably haven't considered these businesses but you know have a bit of a look and that very constant feedback loop that you get from pitching um, seasoned investors is invaluable. So you learn very, very quickly whether your thought um, processes are, have, have any merit or not, because you'll um, it would sort of be on the, on the firing end of five or six 
pretty insightful questions pretty quickly and you need to have answers to those. Um, and, and it's an iterative process. The first one you come out of, the second one you come out of, you're pretty embarrassed. And then you go back and learn the answers to the questions that you should have known the first time around. And by the time you've done it 10 or 15 times, there aren't too many questions you don't have the answers to. And once you sort of build up that almost muscle memory of questioning um, and, and what's important in an investment, um, that becomes incredibly useful. Um, and um, um, the, the depth that you sort of, um, that you generate through that process um, is sort of kept me in pretty good stead. Um, and you, you get compounded on that over, over the years, essentially. Yeah, just um, on that point, when you talk about, oh, you were covering a lot of those companies where um, a lot of the others weren't willing to cover. Um, did it provide you insights into what probably didn't look like a great investment? It did. And, and a lot of the businesses I was covering were the good old Australian roll-up story where you've, you've got a pretty preppy industry and you start with a balance sheet and you're buying uh, tucking acquisitions on three or four times earnings and, and that looks fantastic for a while and the EPS accretion or the earnings per share accretion every year looks great because you've got a publicly listed company. This is back when you were buying um, businesses on eight to 10 times EBIT rather than 15 times EBIT. The businesses are trading on these days, but eight to 10 times EBIT, you're buying them on three or four times EBIT. So the EPS accretion that you get from that is incredible and it's a bit of a drug, you know, there's EPS upgrades every year and things look fantastic. And the, the, the missing piece of the equation there is what's actually happening to the returns that you're generating from those businesses over time. Um, and so the return on invested capital, the cash generation that those acquisitions have been making start to decay. And unless you're looking at the right levers within the cash flow statement or the PL or the balance sheet, that can be missed. Um, and, the, and the drug of the EPS accretion can be sort of very seductive. Um, and hanging on to those businesses for too long is, is a very, very bad idea. So um, there's definitely some lessons from from those early days that have kept me in pretty good stead over the over the over the years of, on the on the buy side. Just cycling through so many companies and just um, absorbing so much, I guess, knowledge, and you're turning into muscle memory. Did you have any methods where you try to compress everything and synthesize everything and into like key points just to um, really retain that knowledge, or was it just a matter of just doing everything? Yeah, I mean, on, on the early days was very much drinking from a, high, a fire hydrant. So, um, you know, on the, as a young analyst on the sell side, you, you, you're not trying to cover 300 or 400 stocks. You, you're trying to know maybe 10 or 15 really, really well. And so you've got concise models, usually which you've built from scratch and you've worked up an, a, an initiation note and you've sort of gone through a lot of detail and you expect to know those businesses quite well. Um, where the... Um, where the discipline or the infrastructure came in on compressing as much information as possible um, or, or figuring out what's truly important about a business really came from the next step of the journey, which was the, um, which was the lucky or fortuitous um, opportunity to, to sort of pitch Schroders as a sell-side analyst. And I got to know a chap called David Wannis um, who was working at Schroders and just launched the small and microcap funds for them. And through that process, I was really lucky that he was like, well, look, you're, you're young, you're, you're, you're very enthusiastic. Um, you probably don't know a lot, but um, I, I can sort of mold that into something that's a little more useful. So why don't you come and sort of work for us on the microcap fund and you can sort of cut your teeth there in the funds management industry. And it was really through that process that I sort of learned the power of two things. Firstly, being incredibly organised with, with data, um, whether it's quant data or qualitative data. And secondly, there's probably three or five, three to five things max that are important about this investment. You need to know those three to five things 
everything else is nice to know, but um, you know, if you get the three to five things right, um, it's our Pareto rule, um, especially as we're trying to cover sort of 500 stocks, um, you, you get to the nub of what's important very, very quickly. And so it was, it was really that second stage of my career working with David that, that all that came together. Hmm. I think, yeah, when I first started investing, I think it's easy to get excited about gathering as much information as possible. Um, but do you think you needed to go through that process to, to try and figure out what really mattered? Because when you say, I guess, three to five key points and the, are you trying to find data points that, that support those three to five qualitative key points that support your thesis? Well, um, sort of how it's worked out over the years is we've actually got 15 checkpoints at Fairlight that we run through sort of from top to bottom. We debate those in the same way every single time. But as you run through those 15 checkpoints, there's usually three of those checkpoints that are going to drive the majority of the investment thesis. Um, so it was, a, I don't know if you want to step through the, all the way through to Fairlight at this point, but it was very similar when we went, when, we were, when I was at Schroeder's, um, you know, we had a very formulaic way in which we discussed stocks. And you go through in quite some detail and sort of building out those theses, et cetera. But um, what we learned, especially with, with David, it was a little bit different from the large cap team because they were it's a discrete, um, smaller opportunity set where you sort of need to know things in a lot more depth. But working with David, it was really a sense of, um, yes, we're going um, we're gonna to have some detail on these businesses, but what is it that's going to be driving the investment thesis here? Is it going to be the organic... Um, growth rates is it going to be the margin is it going to be the, um, the buyback they got in place is it an interesting acquisition that they've made is it a new management team what is the like what is the crux of this investment thesis that's going to drive the returns over the next three to five years mm. um, so it's to your point it's like you need to know the detail but within that detail what are the important things that are going to be driving the business um, yeah. what I'm not a big believer in and continue to not be a big believer in is uh, financial models that have got 30 to 50 lines building up to a revenue input um, because yeah. just the mathematics of probably, you know, even if you get to an 80% probability on each of those lines, by the time you get to the revenue line, the probability of getting them all right is, is very, very low. Uh, just the way that the mathematics work out on, on um, um, probabilities over time, it's, it's very, very difficult to get to a precise answer. So we keep things as simple as possible, but no um, simpler than they, they can be. So um, the, the, what are the sort of true drivers here? Let's not kid ourselves. We're going to be completely accurate. But going through the discipline of building out a model um, sort of tells you what is important about the business. But what you don't need to do is um, get into the minutiae on things that really don't matter. Um, so avoiding that is, is very important and it gives you a lot more breadth um, and, and sort of opportunities to compare and contrast across more businesses. Yeah. I'll be really interested to find more about how David played that mentoring role um, because I think um, most, most experienced fund managers um, can really pull apart, you know, what's, as you said earlier, what's really important. Was it a matter of him reviewing your model, reviewing your work, and then really putting the question to, towards you and then trying to think in the same way he does? What I was really lucky with um, with David was that 
all the infrastructure is already in place. So I don't have to make any claims of being a genius from an early age. Here. I was just really lucky that I, I sort of stepped into a, a business where, you know, someone had taught him and the guy before him and, and sort of given him some, some tips and that sort of concertinaed down to this opportunity where I walked in and essentially there was a model template that was already built and there was a stock discussion note with already it's had some points in it. So it was really uh, about how do I understand how these elements come together? So for any young analyst, it's all about sort of hitting F2 a million times before you ask too many questions of your, of your superior to make sure you sort of understand things before you sort of tap in their time too much. But we had those two tools and then what, what essentially he did, which I was really fortunate about, was that he'd already done the first screening process. So of the, I don't know how many thousands of businesses are there are in the small and micro cap um, index these days in Australia, but um, he essentially had a stack of about 100 annual reports, which he just dumped on my desk. Uh, and he said, these are the businesses I think will be interesting. We need to get this down to a portfolio of 30 to 40. Hmm. That's where I'd like your help with. And so from day one, I was reading about interesting companies that I knew that he'd already done the filtering process on. So that, that sort of element of not wasting time and starting to, once again, to get that muscle memory of what a good business looks like, um, while it involved a huge amount of work, I was very fortunate that um, the heavy lifting in that instance had already been done by David, and uh, mm. I sort of had the the pleasure of, of his his work that had been done over time, uh, the pleasure of um, or, or the um, the benefit of that work that he'd done over time had already been filtered down into that level. So I guess I was just very lucky on that on that front. Mm. So moving forward, I think. So you've developed the whole toolkit. Um, I think David's passed on um, the skills that you needed to become a, a pro or elite analyst. And then you move forward to becoming a co-portfolio manager at Evans and Partners. Is that right? Yeah, there was one step before that. So I was working yeah. with David um, in the small and um, small micro cap products. And I was working as, a, as an analyst on the large cap product at um, Schroders as well on the retail side. And through that process, I was really lucky to be invited to move to New York and work with a lady called Jenny Jones, who has one of the most formidable um, small cap track records in the US. Um, she's very well known over there and incredibly well known within the Schroeder's business. And um, so moved over there and for a few years, worked under her tutelage, um, which, which, you know, once again, sort of what I worked for, what, what I learned from David was, you know, the power of um, putting together uh, funds management with very strong IT systems and, and sort of making sure that you're collating data in an incredibly efficient way and, and getting to a very structured outcome from Jenny. was a little bit different insofar as she was very much style driven. So she had three styles of investing run through her portfolio. She had um, sort of growth, um, sort of compounding sort of bucket, a, a little bit more of a, a value bucket, um, which I, I learned and, and have instilled in the fellow um process as well so we've got something very similar to that we call them slightly different things and she had a couple of extra sort of esoteric buckets that sort of we've, we've yeah. dropped over time but the idea of having three opportunity sets um was very very instructive to me um the, the tweak that we've made is that we've got a very strict adherence to anchoring everything into quality so 
less so with Jenny. She was very happy to look at unprofitable businesses and companies that were generating just below their cost of capital and hoping they improved over time. Whereas Fairlight, we, we want businesses that are generating a, a good return on their invested capital above their cost of capital from day one. But having these three styles, I could see how they move differently in different market environments. Uh, and people sort of say, well, why would you do that? Should you choose one style that does best over time? Or what you're sort of missing there is the opportunity cost of being out of recycle capital. So during difficult market market periods, it's nice to have some stable businesses in there that you can use as a as a bank, if you like, to really sort of move that capital into your higher growth names when they've been sold down by 30 or 40%. Um, and, and then low risk turnarounds act a little bit more like value. So when you get a value rally, they can sort of help you keep up a little bit in those, in those periods. Um, so, so that was very, very instructive. Um, and, and Jenny works very, very hard in New York culture and got to know sort of how... Um, the business work, world worked over there and to see if there was any advantages or disadvantages of working on Wall Street or the equivalent of, I was actually in Midtown, most firms are these days, but um, whether there was any advantages of being based in, in New York or London as compared to Sydney or, you know, quite frankly, Auckland, um, yeah. whether, whether you need to be in those big sort of metro, big business centres to, to drive a return or not. So that, 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 that experience was great as well. And then eventually moved to Evans Partners. Do you think it made a huge difference being in in that bubble um, in New York? Um, what I what I found was um, it was a really interesting experience. But but what what ends up happening is that you get distracted really quickly. So to give you an idea, I come into the, the office and a little bit different to. Um, Sydney-based offices and so far as we had our own office and so you walk in and you, got, you sit down at your desk and you've got your computers. It's quite quite isolated in some ways. You're not less of a sort of team feel to it. But you, your, um, your voicemail will be filled up with 30 to 40 calls from brokers before you even get in there. Um, and, and it's like here's our new research or bringing someone through town or whatever it might be. So you end up, and because we were also running a, a less concentrated fund, we had a sort of over hundred names, mm. you end up sort of investing and meeting with businesses you wouldn't ordinarily um, think to do if you were sort of running a more concentrated fund. So you, you're meeting with these sort of fringe businesses where they're not as high quality, but they're a bit of a portfolio filler and you, you need to have, you know, 30 or 40 names in your own, in your own coverage to sort of fill out the, a portfolio um and so that piece I, I don't think is very accretive sort of meeting with brokers trying to figure out who on the brokerage side are, are good analysts and, and sort of trying to drill into their, their model you spend as much time sort of figuring out who's good on the sell side as you do speaking to management teams um so that's really distracting the second was is the volume of companies coming through the office so you'd spend a lot of your time sort of meeting with businesses that you probably never invest in, but you need to because you're on the sort of rotation of these companies coming through on an annual basis. Um, I don't think that was particularly creative. Um, the second thing was that it, it was pretty clear to me that the only advantage you have from sitting in Wall Street or, or London is a long haul flight. So if you're going to be sitting in Sydney, you really nullify that if you're happy to sit on a flight for 15 hours and land in, in LA, LA or wherever it might be. And then you still got to get on a flight to go to um the midwest or or down to texas or wherever you know and, and then if you're investing in uk businesses you got to fly across the uk anyway so the advantages there i think are pretty spurious to be, to be frank um and, and then the idea of buying a whole bunch of sell-side research we, we really don't do that we speak directly to management teams build our own models um you know do our own work on those businesses so i i really genuinely don't think there's an advantage of being that that part of the world and you know i know it's a bit of a cliche but after all warren buffett's based in the middle of you know middle of the country it doesn't seem to affect his returns at all mm. because i imagine it would have taken so much time 
um, the whole process would have been quite time intensive going through so many companies and then um, so many brokerage calls and uh, sell side reports of, you know, businesses that you probably won't even end up investing, right? That's right. It's just a huge time sink. And so in, instead of doing that, why don't you just say, well, there's 200 companies globally or maybe 300 companies globally that are ever going to be of interest to us because they fit all of our criteria uh, and then focus on those. So instead of sort of sitting in New York or London waiting for companies to come to us, we've got a short list of businesses that we want to get to know well mm-hmm. and we'll jump on a plane, go and meet with their management team, form a relationship. Um, over time, it becomes a trusted relationship um, so we can kind of help with things along the way if, if they ask for it. Um, and, and that way, you know, we're fishing from the right pond. We don't have to be distracted by mm. the third or fourth tier business, which it's never going to cut mustard for us. And, 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 and even sectors that, you know, we're not interested in either. Um, so we cut out a huge amount of the market um, by only investing in, in four sectors, which I'm sure we can get onto later on when we talk through process, yeah. et cetera. But um, yeah, that, that whole idea of covering the entire market and having a huge team and the distractions that come from the communications, not only with your team but the brokers and the businesses that you're never going to invest in it just creates a web of misguided effort that um i just don't think is particularly useful how about the lifestyle and cultural aspects of meeting management do you think it's it really helped you a lot in in terms of um, better understanding um, um companies to invest in in your current fund I think so. I mean, um, with um, with the Australian smaller micro cap markets, it's absolutely valuable. So because they're such small businesses that essentially if they're making a few hires, it's going to move the P&L around a bit. So you, and, and, and the personalities there are going to drive um, the returns to a degree. For Fairlight these days, yes, management is really, really important and we meet with them and we get to know their culture, et cetera. But there's a lot more you can do as an individual investor which are you know a lot of your listeners are um that you don't need to be quite as um i guess paranoid about what management are doing from a day-to-day basis and the reason for that is usually in the areas that we're investing small to mid caps so the weighted average market cap across our portfolio looks very much like the asx 200 to give you an idea um, these established businesses Many of our companies have been around for quite a few cycles. Um, 85% of them are around before 2008, 2009, to give you a bit of a view there. Mm. A lot of the cultural aspects, et cetera, come through in the annual reports. So you're reading the annual reports and the letters from these guys and you can kind of check box, you know, what did they say last year? Did they execute across that? Um, yes, no. Um, and they can also withstand a bit of a period of mismanagement. So you don't want bad managers running your businesses forever. But if a new team comes in and they're doing a subpar job, usually, especially in the States, they get moved along reasonably quickly if they're not, you know, if they're not doing a, a good enough job. And so sometimes sort of being completely impatient there and, and sort of selling the business down to zero, often that's not the best idea. Um, so yes, we, we meet with management teams, we, we voice our concerns, et cetera. Um, there's usually activists that are sitting in the background ready to sort of step in if, if you know, it's 18 months of misguided um, management. But, um, you know, you don't need to be talking to these guys every day to, to get a mm. really good view of the culture and the, the direction of the business, I guess, is the message I'm trying to provide. Mm-hmm. Um, just one more question about um, your time um, with Jenny. Um, you said that she was much more focused on um, maybe proof of concept companies that weren't um, profitable. Um, was there any reason why she she was more um, allured to that that basket? 
was actually a little bit different. It was less proof of concept businesses. So she wasn't ever really sucked into the new narrative on, uh, you know, the, the latest IT or tech stock or concept stock. It was more, is there a business here? And it's kind of a little bit more like um, the, the guys at, uh, at Platinum do a good job here. It's more like the cyclical companies that are out of favour, that are making a loss. Um, we're happy to sort of see cyclical return to, to businesses that, um, that can generate a decent return on their capital years two, three, and four years out. That, that's not what we do at Fairlight, which Jenny was quite good at, but um, we don't give ourselves a passing grade there, so we simply don't get involved. What was the main reason why you guys didn't pursue that is because of the repeatability of that process? It's a repeatability of the process and also just a recognition that um, very few people can time markets and time cycles within markets. So... What we're trying to do is find businesses where the amplitude of their cycle is quite low. Um, so, yes, all businesses are cyclical. We recognise that, but you know, there's a difference between a company. You know, one of our litmus tests, and, and the guys that are in the team are sometimes give me a fair bit of grief about this, but I remind them I'm just going back to see what worst case scenarios can be here. Yeah. But one of the one of the things that we we insist on when we go through our process is building a model from scratch that captures. 07 through 10 um, and, and it's really not about saying look are we expecting another GFC probably not but how did that business go through that period um, and how cyclical was it uh, if, if earnings were negative or they were down 90% then hmm. you know, the next cycle might not be as bad but that there's some information value there that that tells us that you know the company is not as robust as maybe we, we hoped it would be now there might have been some changes over that time that's made it a little less cyclical over time but that, that's a reasonable litmus test um so, so to give you a bit of an idea like the average sort of downturn in in earnings across our portfolio was around 20 percent during 2008 2009 which you know none of them made a loss um so we've got a fair bit of confidence there that if we go through a downturn we can either buy with confidence or we know that we're not going to get completely blown up from a business perspective when we don't know what the returns of the fund is going to be but at least we know our companies are going to be around during that time so it's just taking that element of you know cyclicality out of the decision making which just helps everyone sleep a little bit better at night and buy with confidence um, during downturns hmm. now we can finally move forward to um, your opportunity with um, Stephen Arnold, where yep. you where you were a co-manager um, at Evans and Partners. Um, having listened to Stephen Arnold speak with us uh, previously, he did value the importance of someone who travelled around the world and had that worldly experience, uh, something that you had. Um, so that's probably one of the key reasons why he chose you to partner with. <laughs> I like to think there's a lot of reasons we ended up partnering together and we got, we got, got along personally from day one, which is nice. And we, we had a lot of overlap in the way that we thought about investing and um, we had similar outlooks and on the world, et cetera. Um, and I, I just wanted to make it really clear that I joined Stephen and Stephen had already sort of built that product out. So full kudos to him for the, for the success that he sort of developed within Evans apartment before I arrived. Um, just want to make that crystal clear, yeah. but um, but learn a lot under um, Stephen's tutelage as well. So I've just been really fortunate to have three fantastic mentors in, in David, Jenny and Stephen. Um, and really what Stephen instilled in me um, was this sense of, you know, don't make compromises on quality. You know, you, you don't need to buy the, the second and third tier business, even if they look a bit cheaper. Often there's there's reasons for that. Um, and so, you know, you really want to be buying the number one and maybe at a stretch, the number two in the industry, but really the number one in the industry. It might even look a little a tiny bit more expensive, but 
the majority of your returns you're going to get over time is going to be from EPS growth, not from a re-rating stock, um, for, you know, over reasonable timeframes, hence why we invest over five to seven years. Um, and so, you know, I was already thinking down that line, but um, I think that what Stephen was happy, why Stephen was happy to partner with me was that he essentially saw that, um, you know, I was already there and very happy to sort of take that up a notch on the quality of the businesses that we invested in. And it was a, it was a very happy marriage for the time that I was able to partner, that's for sure. Hmm. How about on the quantitative side of things? Um, did you learn a lot from Stephen as well? Yeah, I mean, he's got, he's got a very interesting approach to the way he looks at businesses. So he's got this sort of idea of capital drag and what that sort of means for the way that he values stocks. We do things a tiny bit differently at, at Fairlight. Uh, but we're sort of arriving at the same area. We're looking for businesses that are capital light, good returns on capital. You don't need to investing in, in capex and working capital to grow the business every year. So we, we end up at a pretty similar spot. Um, I, I, I'm not too sure if they've formalised it, but we use the, the, the croaky score cash return on, on cash invested, uh, which adds back the amortisation depreciation every write down that an management team's made to, to get a true cash return on every dollar of capital that's ever been invested in a business. So they've got similar disciplines, I think, across the Aorus um, uh, mindset. Um, so it might be slightly different metrics. They might use returns on gross capital or whatever it might be, but we're, we're just, we're both pointing at the same thing. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely some learnings there. And also the discipline that he instilled in the way that he executes that process was, um, was over and above. So if we had, um, at one end, learning from Dave was the 80-20 Pareto. Let's get this down to a workable list, which I think he does better than anyone in the market. And then the discipline that Steve's got around the mindset of only owning 10 to 15 businesses. I mean, you're going to be pretty sharp around the, the discipline you need to execute that with confidence. A combination of those two things have been invaluable. Hmm. What's the decision-making process like um, between yourself and um, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, we were um, portfolio managers, but uh, during that journey, um, I made it very clear to Stephen it was very much the case that he was the the guy that was, in, you know, he he built the strategy. I was there as his two IC. That was the role that I performed within that business. Um, you know, he's a he's sort of been investing in international markets a lot longer than I had, and I was very mindful that um, you know he was the he was the guy that was going to be teaching me rather than the other way around. I mean, I like to think that, you know, maybe learn a couple of things over, from me over the years, but you know, it, was, it was very much a sense of um, um, a structure in the way that we sort of discuss stocks and very similar to what's um, carried through to, to Fairlight. Um, so having an idea of sort of a checklist manifesto on, on the on businesses, on, on the elements of the business you're discussing, discussing, and usually the answer falls out of the bottom of that. Um, and so it becomes pretty clear whether this is a good investment or not. Um, mm. So that process was, was really disciplined at, at, um, at Evans Partners and, and it's something that I think it's also flowed through to Bob Desmond's business at Claremont. Um, being very disciplined in the way that you discuss and debate uh, inputs to an investment uh, is, is sort of more important than the outcome in a lot of ways because I think people are very quick to come to a buy-sell decision but they haven't really investigated the ways that they've got there. Um, hmm. It's even did a pretty good job on making sure that um, you're actually checkboxing everything on the way through. Hmm. So just reflecting upon your experience, your work experience. Um, firstly, you worked at One Minute, um, where you covered, you know, probably the most number of stocks as possible, and it's, it's slowly decreased over time. Like that pool has shrunken. Yep. Um, so 
do you feel like you have more time on your hands now compared to when you first started in the industry or less time? As, as a father of two, I clearly say that I've got way less time than I ever have in, in my life. But, um, but I think what's really liberating is just that you've got a much clearer sense of uh, the kind of businesses you're prepared to do the work on. So we are very, very quick to cut things. So we, we might start with our filtering process, which, which generates maybe 15% new names per quarter. We look through that list and we are incredibly quick to cut them. And then we, we work through a process of sort of, where we're a little bit different from the from the market, I think, is on our stage two of our process, where the learnings from bigger institutions have really come through for us. So uh, on things that you don't want to repeat, and that it's no fault of a big institution. It's kind of where you become sort of bureaucratic over time unintentionally. Um, so what we do on stage two is rather than doing a huge body of work and sitting around a table and and you know, doing a, a one-hour deep dive into a business where you've visited all the management teams and everyone in the supply chain, you expected to know every answer to a question. We don't do that. We automate the first process, and it's really about having someone who's a quarterback to bring all that information to bear. And then we've got four minds around the, the table, scrubbing that idea down and saying, "Is this worth doing more work on?" And if it is, we know that we're you know eighty percent of the way there, and that's where we turn into market animals. We're getting on planes and we're sending the wheel off to live in New York for six months of the year last year and visit these companies and speak to the supply chain and speak to the private equity players and management teams and different tiers of management, um, modeling the business back through 2006, all the annual report data and adding back the cash or adding back all the elements to the balance sheet that are important to get to a true cash. Element. That's a huge body of work. Um, and so you want to make sure you're doing that on your most efficacious ideas yeah. because a, you're going to have a huge time waste if it's um, if it's if you if, if you don't get to something that's investable. And secondly, it's it's about morale. So you know, if someone spends that amount of time working on a business and you get to the last step, and you're like, well, there's a off balance sheet liability here that's twice the size of the market cap. We're never going to buy it. We should have picked that up on stage one. Hmm. So so it's really about you know the liberation that comes from only working on the world's best businesses in the small and mid cap market it just means that your probabilities of that being a decent investment increases and so your efficiency increases and also the morale of the team um, increases by you know quite a factor for that stage one process where you're doing um the biggest filtering process mm. um but what are the key uh, things that um you look out for yeah so we've got stage one which is our filtering process stage two which is that rapid analysis piece stage three which is the sort of deep dive into business and stage four which is the um, decision on the actual portfolio um, stage one which is the, the screening process we um, we're trying to reduce risk as much as possible so we're not invested in uh, emerging markets so developed markets only so that knocks out quite a few businesses we're only invested in four sectors and those sectors which have the greatest density of businesses with great returns on capital so that's healthcare technology we sort of invested in what we call niche tech there um, so not not many of the high-flying tech names that you hear about. So healthcare technology, light industrials, so companies that aren't deeply cyclical. Um, and then sort of we, every once in a while, we find a, a media and consumer business which passes muster. But usually it's business-to-business, -business, high customer retention rates, 98% customer retention rates where we're, we're sort of looking for um, to go to a deep dive that knocks out a, a, quite a, a array of businesses. Then we look at the companies that have generated a return on their invested capital of twice their cost of capital over at least a five-year period. Um, so that's um, that 
knocks out as quite a few as you'd imagine. We're looking for very modest EPS growth. So we're, you know, we do appreciate the companies can accelerate their EPS profile, but we started a modest EPS growth number, but it has to be positive. And then we don't like businesses that have a lot of leverage. Um, so we knock out companies that have got uh, over four turns of net debt to EBITDA. We're actually not buying businesses that levered either, but sometimes we've got a mandate to pay down debt. So we start to look at them when they are, when they are sort of starting to de-lever, if you like. And then the last element is shares on issue. So companies that are issuing equity like Confetti keeps us out of that original uh, example I provided you of the good old Australian roll-up story where you know, you're using script to, to buy businesses, but you know, you're essentially diluting existing shareholders and returns usually follow over time or um, the high-flying tech businesses where it's not unusual at the moment to see um, you know, technology businesses now issuing 10% of their revenue in equity compensation, which makes it very, very difficult to um, generate EPS over time because you've got this huge hurdle of dilution coming through every year. So that, that process alone gets us down to about 200 companies globally, which um, the past muster and not all of those are interesting. So we complement that with other screens. We get on the road, we meet with suppliers. Uh, we meet with competitors and other businesses that within that chain that throws up some interesting ideas. And, that, and that there's also businesses that, that need to make some pretty solid adjustments to their um, financials to get to what's special about the business. Uh, so they won't come through the screens. They're just going to come through good old fashioned elbow grease and, and getting out there and meeting with companies and figuring out you know, true economics. So that's um, so talking to suppliers. That would be part of the stage two process, doing the initial due diligence. Is that right? Um, so that's usually stage three. So stage okay. two is is really quick. So it's really about um, okay. So we're, we're stage two is uh, stage one's filtering. Stage two is a rapid DD, and that's about you know facts at Bloomberg data. Okay. Putting templates together. It's really fast. Stripping yeah. information out of annual reports and off websites. Um, you'll have competitor information in there, but you generally haven't spoken to the competitor yet. Yep. Uh, and, it, and we don't care about typos and formatting and all that sort of stuff. Like no one's going to care if the report, like what the appearance of the report looks like. It's, it's all about speed. Yep. Um, and so that puts gets them put in front of everyone. That's our sort of first working document of flipping through the pages. And yep. you know, we've already read the report before we come into a meeting. We stole it from Bezos that you give everyone 15 minutes again before you sort of enter into the conversation to look through that document again. Yeah. And you're going through it and it's not about um, reading it and looking at holes in someone's investment thesis. It's about reading this document and saying, how can I help? So what's yep. the information I can bring to this conversation about whether this is, what have I seen in other industries or other other businesses within the chain here that can sort of lend or put some light on our original assessment of this business. Yeah. And then, um, for the third stage, that's where you um, carry out much more intensive information. But just going back to um, stage two, I think uh, a lot of analysts can get caught up in spending too much time. But how much yep. time would you spend doing that rapid? Um, Not more than two days. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that's pretty strict. Um, so if you if it looks like someone's put too much effort into a, into a report, they usually get called out about it. You know, it's a stage three report, not a stage two report. Sometimes yeah. people can get super enthusiastic about it, enthusiastic about things and get lost a little, and that's fine. Like we're not going to throw tantrums about it. But you know, generally, what you know, if the emphasis here is on speed, and um, yeah. you know, we're not going to miss too much here. That you know, that I'll let, it's going to disrupt the decision between yeah. this going through or not. Um, they're, they're the big buckets of information that we're trying to get to, and it's very formulaic in the way that we've worked through that. So speed okay. is paramount. Okay. 
and it's closely linked to the key metrics um, that are outlined in stage one or? Very closely, exactly okay. right. So it yeah. almost kind of mirrors that process in a lot of ways, unless there's something special. There's a, I don't have the report in front of me, but essentially yeah. how, how it sort of um, comes through is brief description of the business, brief description of the industry, um, yep. what that looks like, qualitative factors about management or the culture of the business. And then it sort of moves into financials about revenue, the drivers of the returns, margins, capex, working capital, um, balance sheet metrics, cash flow conversion, um, and then the, the body of the report goes into ESG and then risks. Um, we usually try to attach a short report if we can find one to the bottom of the, um, or, or a yep. summary of that short report. So we're trying to invert our thinking and then follow-ups at the bottom, which is um, I put this report together in two days. Here's the things that I think need follow-up. Yep. Um, is there anything else we can add to that? But essentially just runs through that process every single time. So the, there's no surprises in the way that we debate those businesses. And but when you've done it a thousand times, literally, it becomes really clear about whether this is a, business we want to stay, take through to stage three or not yeah have any of those um that didn't quite make the stage three process made it back into stage three um yep they sit on they sit on um we, we've got a sort of uh, a bench which is businesses that we're very happy with and we're just waiting for price and then we've got another list which is you know companies that have come through either the screen or met with that look vaguely interesting but there's some things that need to improve before they can get through to the stage three and that might be we need management to move on um, or they need to stop acquiring or they need to come back to what's special about the company and understand where their true value is or um you know, there's some elements of the business we need to track for longer before we get comfortable with them, especially in the retail market. Um, mm. There just might be, you know, a few few hairs on them that we, we're not quite comfortable with yet. And if we did take it through to stage three, we probably still wouldn't be comfortable with them. So let's yeah. just park it for a while and see how things develop. And once again, pretty formulaic in a way, we go back over that list on a quarterly basis to see if any of those things have changed. And then we once again, debate it again, these things have changed. Do we take it through to stage three? And if the answer mm. is yes, then roll up your sleeves and let's get going. Yeah. Yeah, so um, reading your investment handbook, um, you highlighted the importance of finding capital light or businesses that can deploy growth capital at high um, incremental rates of return. Yeah. Um, would you say that that rapid review is trying to extract as much information as possible to to um get to that um destination yeah i mean that's part of it um, for sure i mean that that's sort of the crux of where you're trying to get to um so if you've got a business that uh, you know is, is generating a 25 percent return on the capital that they deploy um they should be paying a dividend that's for sure they should be sort of doing that as as fast as they possibly can until that um that opportunity set is no longer available to them. And it's really trying to assess the risks around them doing that. Um, and so that, that's sort of the crux of the whole report that we're, you know, what's, the, what's the return on invested capital? Mm. How has this been generated? And is it sustainable? Um, there, there actually isn't even a valuation metric on that first report. We don't even bother with valuations. We're trying to, trying to figure out is, is this a fair life stock or not? Yeah. Valuation is completely agnostic at this point because at, at some point in the cycle, stocks are going to be expensive and every once in a while you get a chance to buy back stocks which are previously way too expensive but it might be a one-off opportunity to do so, COVID or the yeah. current growth sell-off we've got at the moment. Um, and so it's really the returns on capital that we're trying to get to. Yeah. Um, so the qualitative ingredients that contribute towards higher um, 
crocky, I guess, cash returns on capital invested. So I guess the industry section of that rapid um, report, that kind is that a telltale sign of whether or not um, there's going to be high returns on invested capital? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things that can drive that, right? So it's not unique to a particular business. There might be uh, a network effect that drives it. It's, it's been very well articulated over the last decade or so about what's happening in the tech market there, or it might be an industry that's consolidated to the point where it's an oligopoly and um, all the management teams communicate to each other through their annual reports that pricing's going up this year. You know, it's a very rational industry. Um, you know, there might be a piece of IP um, that sits on a, on a chemical compound in a chemistry business that sustains and they've got strong patents around that or, you know, there's, there's a squillion things that can go into, um, you know, the, the formula that, that allows a business to generate a good return on invested capital. And what you're looking for is signs of erosion there. So it's a great business. There's pretty good evidence to, to suggest that businesses that generate great returns on capital tend to do so over a long period of time. Um, and what you're really on a, um, on a mission to do is figure out any reasons why that might be impaired. Mm. Um, so reading your recent um, monthly update, that was very reassuring to um, investors in a, in a bleak uh, world out there. Um, you emphasize the importance of um, return on capital and are you able to unpack the empirical evidence that supports why um, often businesses that are able to generate high cash returns on investor capital often um, provide higher earnings and then that kind of travels in the same um, direction as the share price? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's plenty of evidence out there that supports that. I mean, um, McKinsey did a pretty good study on businesses that generate good returns on capital and they do so over a long period of time. I think Munger sort of made a, a quick uh, that a, a stock return sort of over time approximates a return on capital. I think I'm sort of paraphrasing there, but essentially I think the message is, is correct that, and, and it's mathematically true, right? If you're not generating a return on your assets above your cost of capital, you're destroying value. I mean, you're just putting a product in, in the market where you're not generating an economic return, that the outcome for that business is gonna be pretty ordinary over time. Um, now, returns on invested capital if you don't have ways to deploy that capital isn't quite as powerful. So you might have a business that generates fantastic returns on capital, but you've got no way of growing your earnings. Um, so you're kind of limited to the dividends that you can pay out or the shares you can buy back at a discount to sort of really drive your return. So if you have a combination of a business that generates fantastic returns on capital and great ways to deploy capital, that is Nirvana. Um, so essentially you're like, all right, we're going to put a new factory out there and um, it's going to cost us 100 million bucks, but we're going to get a $25 million return on that year one. Uh, and you can do that in multiple markets, then you know, the mathematics of that are pretty clear to everyone, right? So um, it's a combination between a business that generates high returns and ways to deploy that capital, which is important. Um, and you know, that's been proven out over a long period of time. Now, the, the mathematics of how that comes together is that you can, for these businesses, you can pay a much bigger multiple than you would originally think, um, as long as that sort of works out um, over the long term. So we had an example, one of our monthlies of a business called Ansys, which showed sort of the return profile of that business, but um, you, know, you could have paid 60 times earnings for that company over the last decade and still generated a very reasonable 10% return per annum on that business, even if you've got a multiple contraction back to the 30 times uh, in the example that we used. Now, we don't do that, by the way. We're not advocates of going out there and paying 60 times earnings for businesses. Um, we think you need a nice margin of safety because you're going to get some wrong. Um, and 
you know, we're also big fans of getting a, um, a PE uplift on our returns rather than a contraction over time. But it's really just showing, it was just an example to show the, the power of EPS compounding over a long period of time and the, the most um, uh, correlated um, element to EPS growth essentially is returns on capital and, and their ability to deploy it. And I think it's important to emphasize that when you say EPS earnings per share, that's cash earnings and not your traditional metric of um, the reported um, accounting metric. Yes, which, you know, everyone's got sort of different definitions of that. Our, our, we're, we're a little stricter than, I guess, the sell side there in, in terms of what we are happy to add back to get to a cash return um, or cash EPS number. We add back things like uh, customer list amortization, uh, but we don't add back things like stock-based comp, which have become pretty popular in, in the state, especially in tech. Um, the idea that, that the money that you're paying to people for doing a job in um, shares rather than cash not being a cost, we can't quite wrap our head around that one. So we're a little stricter on, on, on those elements. Um, we, we typically don't add back things like... Um, uh, businesses go through restructures on an annual basis. They have a restructure charge going through every year like clockwork. We don't add those back, for instance. So it's, it becomes a bit of a judgment. And then on the flip side of that, there was an interesting business um, book written um, called The End of Accounting, um, which sort of gets into the details around how you might be understating your EPS so it doesn't capture things like the return you get on. The softer elements like R&D or patents or network effects over time are never captured in the balance sheet, um, but they will be captured in years five, six, seven, eight, and 10 in your EPS, but they're very, very hard to measure. So um, there's, a, there's a little bit of subjectivity that comes into forecasting, uh, but you know, for what we can control, we're pretty strict on what we have back. I noticed in your, um, so on the, in the February update, there was a very interesting graph showing um, all your um, current positions at that point in time, showing very high levels of um, cash return on investor capital, some with 100% um, and some, well, all, most of them were over the cost of capital of 10%. Um, can you explain why some companies are able to reach um, such high um, returns and some just are still great businesses that are earning just above cost of capital? That sort of comes into the question of like, why would you bother owning the ones with a, with a 12% return yeah. on capital when you can own one with a 100% return on capital? Yeah. Well, it's not just the return on capital that's important, but it's the defensibility of that return as well and your ability to also deploy capital. Um, so um, you might have a business that's generating a 100% return on, on capital, which would be the case for a company, say, Rightmove, which is the equivalent of REA uh, based down here in Australia. Now, it doesn't have any capital invested. Essentially, that's a website portal. Uh, and then gen generating cash on, from a network effect, which is listings on one side and real estate agents on the other. However, their ability to grow is somewhat marred by the fact they've maxed out their pricing. So, you know, you, the models here for these uh, for these portals is you start with a base level of subscriptions, and then you increasingly egregiously gouge your customer base, uh, which happen to be um, real estate agents over time by upselling premium subscriptions. So you want to be on the front page or you want to have a, um, a property that's uh, sent out first in the email, whatever it might be. And you sort of pull that pricing lever as much as, much as you possibly can. Now we think that Rightmove is sort of at the end of that journey. So their ability to sort of 
push pricing and margin is somewhat impaired, but they're generating fantastic returns on invested capital. At the other end of the spectrum, you might have a business, um, I'm using an example here of a company that still generates very attractive returns, a company called Trex, um, which manufactures composites, composite decking into the housing market, replacing wood. Uh, it's got um, the, the composite decking market has a 25% share in the US and they've got a, within that, Trex has got a 50% share within that market. They're taking share about 3% per year. Now, their return on investment capital there is more like 20% or 25%. It's still really attractive. But what's powerful about that model is that they're able to grow um, their earnings by deploying more capital at that rate of return. So they open a new factory. Uh, they can service new markets. They can move internationally um, at, at that rate of return. And so you're not quite comparing apples with apples. Um, still got businesses with great returns and capital. One's got a greater um, growth profile than the other, essentially. Mm. And then at the very end of the spectrum there, we sort of refer to businesses with 10 to 12% returns on capital. That's usually companies that sit within our turnaround bucket. Um, so they're still generating a, a return of better than the cost of capital, but there's something that they need to do to get that business back to something that looks more like 20 to 25%. I liked how you use the real estate um, example. Um, do you think it's become so big in Australia that, um, as you said, they're a bit limited with their pricing ability. And do you think they're in the process of potentially mortgaging their moat where they're really just providing maybe less value to their clients and customers um, by lifting prices? It does get to that point for any company and we're, we're really mindful. We, we really like companies that have inherent pricing power but don't flex it every year. Um, so to give you an example, there's a company we own called Jack Henry in the portfolio, which provides all of the plumbing to the financial plumbing to the credit unions and small banks in the United States. So essentially, if you're a credit union, you need a core banking system. So rather developing that yourself, Jack Henry will, will, will do that for you. Very high customer retention rate. So the idea of rip and replace for these systems is not one that a um, chief technology officer is going to suggest to the board lightly. So you've got this sort of really lovely installed base and then you go in there and you try and sell them additional services every year. Now, Jack Henry has had CPI escalators built into their contracts every for every year in the, in the past 20 years. They've never executed on that. So they've never put their prices up on their existing products. And the reason for that is they're like, we want to be invited back to sell more product to these guys. Um, now that's changed this year because the whole industry is putting their prices up because of wage inflation. So it's the first time ever they've, they've had to do it, but they've got so much goodwill built into that business for, for not executing on that pricing that when they need to do it, they can, and they don't get their, hopefully don't get their customers' noses out of joint. Now that's, that's a lot different from an REA and, and a right move to an extent where you've been pushing prices through at 10% per annum for the past decade. At, at some point, you know, even if you've got the greatest moat of all time, you know, just don't want to piss off your customers to that extent because you really what you're looking to do is inviting them to try and find an alternative. But it might be difficult. But you just don't want the idea of people actively looking for an alternative and pissed off with you to the point where they are very happy to support someone else. So you're right. Um, there is a bit of a balancing act there and we prefer the Jack Henry approach to the, um, to the businesses that gouge a little bit too much. Mm. Do you carry out any qualitative checks to monitor that value proposition um, between the, the business um, and the customer? Yeah, we do. So we talk to a lot of 
um, customers, ex-employees, um, people in the value chain, industry experts, um, a lot of you know people that just have knowledge of how the industry works or what the culture looks like. Um, and then you know we obviously do the analysis on volume versus pricing on an annual basis as well, where we can get the data. So that sort of gives you a pretty good view as well. That's more quantitative and qualitative, but we do a combination of both, and, and you get a pretty clear picture of what a culture looks like after you've spoken to sort of five or ten people that surround a business. Um, you know, some people have got a bit of an axe to grind, so you try and sort of moderate their view. But you know, normally you get a pretty decent sort of range of outcomes that you can um, normalize to a. To a this is a business that has a under-promise, over-deliver sort of culture that doesn't gouge their customer base that they're looking to, to, to drive um, their returns by adding value to their customers rather than sort of extracting financial rent. Um, so, yeah, we do. We do all of that. And um, it's, a, it's a huge important to, you know, the idea of trying to hold these businesses for a decade or more. Yeah. Is it a bunch of qualitative factors that go into trying to assess whether, well, the, the defensibility of, the moat um because i i think i find competition to be a very uh, strong factor personally yeah i mean once again what we're trying to get to is whether return on invested capital is um, sustainable and the big part of that is the moat of a business and so we're very mindful of new entrants into an industry um so especially into a good example would be once again jack henry so you know they, mm. they work in the financial services industry how is the banking industry changing you know, is digital, are digital wallets becoming a bigger deal? Do people want a traditional bank? Um, what does that mean for the industry? We've got neo banks coming in or digital banks coming in. People don't have, um, uh, they don't have uh, street frontage anymore. So what do these sort of changes to the industry mean for, for Jack Henry's clients and therefore for Jack Henry? Um, and mm. so we, we go through that process of speaking to all the competitors, all the listed new software as a service guys to understand exactly what parts of the market they're targeting, whether they're getting traction, what they can and they can't do, whether they're partnering with, with Jack Henry or whether they're competing with them, mm. uh, whether Jack Henry's sort of acting as a bit more of a, a platform like at Apple where you're plugging into it through APIs or if you're going direct to these client bases. So yeah, we do all of that. Um, and we're trying to really get to the idea of how defensible is this moat? Is it being eroded over time? And are they becoming mm. more or less powerful in, in that equation? Mm. So just reviewing a lot of these companies, they're quite technical. Um, it's definitely outside my circle of competence. Um, but in terms of keeping a pulse on the industry dynamics, um, what kind of things do you guys do to do that? Yeah, I mean, we, we obviously speak to all the companies and all their competitors. And, and once again, we're, we're speaking to you know, unlisted um, or people that are not in the listed sphere. So, um, professionals or consultants or um, industry players or employees or whoever it might be to really try and understand those those markets um, and we're, we're obviously reading all the reports that you can sort of generate online to understand interest, industries etc uh, but it's really that that those conversations we have around sort of how these businesses work and and you know, getting out on the road and, and going to New York or the Midwest or wherever it might be to sort of understand these companies from the bottom up is you know it's a it's unfortunately it's, it involves a lot of elbow grease, but it's one that we're uh, we're pretty dedicated to. Mm. So just jumping to the financials. Um, so monitoring the gross margins is important to keep a track of how strong their, their competitive advantage is. How do you react when suddenly you know one year um, of results uh, it may have gone down um, materially, like 
And then how do you assess that moving forward? Yeah, I mean, um, margins are really important. Um, there's, there's quite a few inputs into that. And sometimes the margins are less important than your ability to sustain them as well. But high margins are really important in a high inflationary environment, obviously. So if you've got a 10% uh, business that generates a 10% operating margin and they can't push through their costs um, and they've got a 10% increase in their cost base, their earnings are going to be down 90%. If you've got a company with a 30% margin and they've got a 10% increase in their costs, um, their earnings are going to be down 23%. So it's still not great, but it's more manageable. So high margins are really, really important, and but it's the sustainability of those margins as well, which is critical. So you don't want to be one of the people spend a lot of time thinking about what organic revenue growth numbers are going to look like. But if you sort of run through the maths of what happens if you ding your margins by 300 basis points, normally they swamp what's happening with the top line. So we're mm. very, very um, focused on whether we think we're at peak margins and whether those margins are sustainable. Um, mm. So we spend a lot of time doing that. We tend to not get too freaked out about sort of quarter to quarter earnings um, sort of misses versus the, the sell side too much because there's a lot of noise around what happens in the quarters, but we do um, sort of on an annual basis, uh, which is how we model our businesses annually, um, sort of look at whether there's a trend there and whether we're missing something from a industry analysis point of view that should be moderating our views across the, um, across the sort of portfolio, if you like. Um, some of the, you know, obviously on the, on the gross margin line are very different to what you're going to get on the EBIT line. So the, the gross margin line is, what we're seeing at the moment, which is commodity price inflation, how much of that can you pass on to your customer base? And if you can't, then you need to cop it on the chin. And so you better be pretty efficient on what you're doing on your SGNA, your selling general admin sort of cost to offset that. Um, and can you do that? Well, we prefer businesses that can um, put their prices up to cover their, their, their gross margin line. Um, and we're also very interested in businesses that are looking on an annual basis, whether it's a high inflationary period or not, and what they can do on SGNA. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, just a case-by-case case assessment and making sure that we're not missing anything on, the, on, on those two fronts. Hmm. On the top line for revenue growth rates, do, does your team try and forecast that or what is the process in relation to that? We, we do. Um, so we forecast out over five years um, and then we sort of get into a terminal value, um, which we're putting a terminal year that we're putting multiple on. So it's really about getting into what we think is a normalised um, EBIT number over that five-year period, and and we are forecasting the, the revenue growth over that over that time. Now, mm. it's it's rooted in what's happened in history. So if you've got a business that's been growing at GDP plus a little bit because they're taking some share, and then all of a sudden in the forecast you've got them growing at fifteen percent per annum, that's going to raise some eyebrows amongst the rest of the team, and you're going to cop some some questioning questioning on on, on mm. sort of why those forecasts are quite that high. So we are very much rooted in what's happened in the past now why things might change um and, and that's a good discipline to go through because um it's one thing to say this business has historically done x, x um, but there are good reasons why that might change there might be a consolidation in the industry or they bought the number two um there might be some um, new management teams that are coming with more rational um, pricing on how they think the industry in general um there might be you know some cost benefits um, across the business where there's less on the growth side but might change the margin profile of the business so there's all sorts of things that might change so you're really looking for some inflections there as well um, not only on the growth line but the other inputs into the model over that five-year period yeah so historically speaking you're going back in time it must take a lot of uh, research and effort to really understand what was going on back in um, because you do model out 
um, from 2006. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so are you relying on the annual reports and what management's talking about? Um, are those the, the, the sources of information that you rely on? Yeah, I mean, we, we start there. So um, we read through all the annual reports and, and um, sort of go through sort of what the, the management teams promised at the beginning of that year and whether they've delivered that by the end of the year. Um, and then we, you know, essentially, once we get through to stage three, we're inputting all of the financial information from that annual report into the model. So there's nothing that really sharpens your mind, like knowing exactly what's in the cash flow statement. And you do that by keying it in. You're like, oh, that number's a bit funny. Why, why did that not compare to 2015? There's something that's sort of changed there. Working capital profile, this business has kind of flipped. Well, and that's interesting. So you just pick up nuances of sort of going through the detail and, and making sure that you're sort of stepping through every line item of it. And, you know, it's an onerous task to go through, but at the end of the day, we're only invested in sort of 30 to 40, 40 companies reasonably concentrated. So um, I think that the having the hurdles reasonably high there about what's under, understanding how this business has changed through a full market cycle. So the reason why we go back through 2006 through 2010 is to say, well, that was a pretty vicious cycle. Um, you know, has the business, how the business go through that period and how has it changed over that time? Um, has it got sort of better and worse? Is it more defensible? Is it less cyclical? That sort of stuff. Um, the only way you can really get there is if you go through every every sort of line item of the business and, and understand them in depth. Um, yep, it takes a lot of time, but, you know, we're here for eight to 10 hours a day. Um, you know, we've got to do something with our time. Let's, uh, let's read some annual reports. Yeah. And to build that picture of the environment in 2006 and onwards, um, do you put in comments in the modeling? So if anyone was to pick it up, then they'll be able to understand what was the circumstances that led to um, the company situation now? Yeah, we even, we even take it a step further than that. So we work in an unusually open um, environment uh, amongst our team so what it's not intentional but I noticed over the years especially working in bigger teams this is a natural tendency for people to kind of selectively provide information to the team um, and it's, it's not intentional it's just that if you've got a strong view of whether a, buy, a song a stock is a buyer or a seller or whatever sometimes you provide supporting evidence on a selective basis to sort of support that view um, human nature it's just a heuristic that we all do so instead of doing that we actually built custom um software or uh, developed custom software in, in partnership with a uh, with a fintech business who, who um, we were very lucky to partner with in very early days that, that software is now sold into the, into the market more generally but what that means is that every time that we touch the model or every time we speak with management or every time we write an investment thesis it's all logged into that system and time stamped so it's not about getting all weird and, and sort of monitoring what people are up to on a, a minute-by-minute minute basis. But it's more saying, how can we make sure that we're honest with ourselves, that the information that we're um, put into this system doesn't change over time, so our view doesn't change. So what that means is that, um, yes, we've got a, a model that sits behind that, um, but every time that we change that model, it shows up in this system or whether the EBIT sort of moved up or down or wherever it might be. And there's comments to support that. Mm. But also every time we speak with management, that's logged in. So every question we've asked them and every answer they've provided. So if I get a question from one of the guys, look, we spoke with the management team in 2020 um, and we've had a development in the first quarter of 2022. Does that gel with the conversation you had with them? I'm like, well, I've got no idea. I could make something up, I guess. I mean, I, I, could, I could use my imperfect recall to try and conjure up what that information was or I can rifle through my old notebook and, and try and find the notes for that. Instead of doing that, we've got it all digitised. And so the question, we, we are the travel 
with an iPad and a and a um, and a and a, and a, and a um, keyboard, and we type that information as we go, mm. or as, if we're on the phone, we type it directly into the system, and it just means that it's all logged. We can mm. we can click on it and touch of a, of a button, and everyone in the team's got exactly the same information um, on that business as the analyst. So, to your point, if we need to change coverage or we want to hand that stock over, which we sometimes do, like sometimes people put their hand up and say, "Look, I." This business could do with a fresh set of eyes. I've, I've gone through a downgrade here, and I feel like I've, I've got some heuristics starting to creep in. And my thinking, maybe we hand this stock on to someone else, and they look at look at it from a fresh set of eyes. They're not starting from the starting point. They've got investment thesis. They've got prior notes, and they can try and come at that information with um with, with a more balanced view. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a very neat piece of software there. And it's great to see you're trying to automate that process as well, trying to save that time and focus on what um, what's more important, which is the quality of the research. Um, are there any ways where you can actually record audio transcripts and then you can kind of um, put that into the worksheets or the notes as well? We're trying to automate as much as possible. Um, I'm not too sure about the legalities of recording someone on a phone yeah. call, so we, we sort of try and avoid that. Um, but it's pretty accurate in terms of, you know, we've got a set of questions. We're all touch typists. I mean, the, yeah. all, all you're missing there, I guess, is a potential sort of Chinese whisper situation where you mishear something. But the, the notes are pretty comprehensive and um, there's probably no need to sort of have a recording there. And we're trying to summarize it as well. Like we're trying to, we're all yeah. time poor. Let's try and get the, the points down here of, of the answers that were provided. Um, and then, you know, there's also nuances. You, want, you know, you, you type and you get the answer and you put it into a bracket. Not sure about that question mark check or whatever it might be. You don't, you don't, get, you don't get that through a recording either. So I think typing is, um, and having those notes in a written form is, is pretty powerful. And I think it's probably the best way of getting the information down to be frank. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, so I'll jump on to uh, valuation part of your process, um, which you lightly touched upon. Um, so I understand you have a specific way to value businesses and it um, it's based on applying a multiple um, on normalized earnings. Yeah, so we've got, we've got two valuation techniques, um, one which we use as our sort of core and, and then another which we cross-check it with. Um, so we've got a five-year no-plat valuation, um, which is sort of a shorthand DCF, if you like, um, and it looks out over five years. And at the end of that period, there's a, a multiple we're happy to pay for the terminal value of the business, which we flex out and down based on a bunch of quality criteria, um, which we score in the same way for every business that we look at. Um, so there's a number of inputs into that, but it's sort of covers rational pricing, quality of management, um, cash conversion, a, a bunch of other metrics, which we think to your point earlier, why do businesses stay quality and why do they continue to generate a good return on invested capital? It's kind of a shorthand of what we think is important. Um, and so all of those scores go into what we're happy to pay for that business um, after year five, after we've sort of got to that normalised earnings number. Now, we don't kid ourselves, and I, I actually listened to one of your um, prior um, interviews um, uh, with my old friend um, Ben from Hayborough. Um, he's, a, he's a good man. I, I, I listened to him sort of talking about the, the perils of DCFs, and we completely agree with that. Like, what we're trying to get to here is an approximation of what we think this business is worth, and so we'd rather be approximately right than precisely wrong. Uh, we, and we also um, compare that to... What you, put, uh, what you accurately described is our normalised cash uh, PE. Um, so we're getting into a normalised cash EPS number 
today. And we're sort of comparing those two to make sure that we're sort of somewhat grounded in reality. But we're, we're very much of the view that there's a lot of different ways to value businesses. And they're the two primary ways that we go about doing it. But we do supplement it with other techniques as well. So there might be a business which got really depressed earnings and you can compare it across an industry and if it looks really cheap from a price to sales point of view, there's probably a good opportunity on the margin side or, you know, this might be a business that, you know, lends itself to the old price to book um, methodology of the old value sort of techniques of valuing the business or there might be a, um, you know, a revenue sort of generation story here that's very difficult to pick up on a five-year time frame. So there is some flex there, but generally it's those two techniques that we use to, to, to sort of frame up 90 percent of our the way that we sort of look at a stock so i think do you apply um the same multiple across is it is it dependent on the geographical location of the company um and what what index that's tied to not not so much i mean we, we are in we're we're invested in developed markets only and i, I know what you're kind of getting at there so you know, if you look at the uk for instance i think it's traded at a five PE discount to the rest of the world um, on the developed world because it's such a poor index. Mm. But because we're really comparing quality businesses to quality businesses, um, we we essentially um, start with the same starting multiple, and then we're flexing it up and down based on a whole bunch of criteria. Um, so you know, quality of management, you know, all that sort of stuff, um, which you know, gets us most of the way there. Um, and and the sort of idea that. Um, you know, you should be paying more for one market or another. Sometimes they normalise over time as well, um, not always. Um, and sometimes they're really skewed by the inputs into the, the market. So the UK, for instance, very heavily UK banks and um, utilities and these really capital-intensive businesses. So is that a really good starting point? Not so sure. So mm. we started, we, what we used is the, the 15-year average of the US market, and then from there we're sort of flexing up and down. Now, we're, we're really only in developed markets. So we're UK, we're in Europe, we're in... Um, we're a bit of an overweight to Switzerland and we're in developed Asia. So we might be wrong by a turn or two on the multiple, but really, you know, the, the premium or discount there is going to be flushed out pretty quickly by the earnings per share profile of the business over that five-year period anyway. So once again, we're trying to be approximately right rather than precisely wrong. Yeah, I really uh, like that approach. Um, so we've patted down the, the whole theoretical process and you've thrown in some really great examples Um as practical uh, case studies. Um, I thought it'd be great for listeners to actually run through the whole um, Fairlight asset management process and, and really dive into some um, business case studies. So have there been any businesses or investments that um, really hit the mark in terms of all the qualitative factors and it was just really obvious from a valuation um, perspective? Thanks for listening to part one of this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Stay tuned for part two of this episode coming soon. We'll be releasing the second half of the interview where Nick goes through three interesting business case studies, why mental flexibility matters, and much more. If you'd like to watch the episode in full right now, head to the RASC YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes.